Thank you all. Thank you to our musicians, our singers, everybody. Man, we are so blessed to live in a world that has music, that God created this entire sonic spectrum for us. And uh, Christians have used it for, well, Christians and Jews have used it for four millennia to make art, trying to represent the great beauty of God. Uh, today we're going to talk about the tabernacle some more. Uh, this is a resource I've been using a fair bit. It's called the Rose Guide to the Tabernacle. Uh, this one is actually Lonesome Me by Julia Kidwell. Um, I'm not going to encourage any of you to buy it unless you really want to because there's only five on Amazon right now, and I'm going to buy one, so that means there's four, and they're all $75. Um, and so thank you, Julia, for letting me borrow your book. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I pray you do, turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 9. We are slowly working our way through the book of Hebrews, uh, carefully uh, letting God speak to us. We are now in Hebrews chapter 9. Last week we looked at one verse. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Today we're going to try to do uh, five verses, well, four verses, um, 1 to 5. So Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. The Bible says this, it says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the jar of manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now, friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. Uh, last week we talked about a single verse, just one verse. And we asked, what can we learn from Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1? What can we learn from the single sentence that the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary? What can we learn from the fact what can we learn about God from the fact that God made a covenant with us and gave us regulations for worship in an earthly sanctuary? And ultimately, we said that regulations for worship prove that God wants human beings to come to him, that God wants humans to come to God, to enter his presence in gratitude and praise. But moreover, we said that most of these regulations, <clears throat> we saw... Moreover, we said that the first covenant also teaches us that God wants sinners to come to him because these regulations were all about making a way for sinners to enter into God's presence. The regulations of cleanliness and sacrifice, they address our guilt before God and the guilt we feel in and of our consciences, which we just sang about a minute ago in that second verse of uh, Before the Throne. When Satan tempts me to despair and reminds me of the guilt within, upwards I look and see him there. Who made an end to all my sin. That when I look at the animal that's just been burned in the altar, the guilt I feel is assuaged. And God knows I need that. And so we learned that God wants sinners to come to him. But then we saw this phrase, earthly sanctuary teaches us that God wants us, doesn't, that God doesn't wait for us to come to God, but God preemptively loves us and comes to us. God comes first. God steps out of heaven and moves into a tent on the earth he has made. God gets on our level condescends to our neediness, meets us in our desert, 
God steps out of heaven and voluntarily limits himself in order to demonstrate his great love for us. This week, I've been thinking a lot about furniture. A lot about furniture, and partly because we're going to look at the furniture inside this tabernacle tent. And we're going to ask ourselves, what can we learn about God and human beings from this furniture, this prescribed furniture? But apart from literal literal furniture, I've been thinking about furniture all week because I believe in the first covenant here called the first covenant in, in Hebrews. God is giving us what I like to call mental furniture. God is giving us mental furniture to think about God, to think rightly about God, to think the right kinds of thoughts about God. You see, uh, Isaiah will say that uh, as far as the heaven is above the earth, so God's ways are above our ways and God's thoughts are above our thoughts. And so human thinking about God can't get it done, so God has to train our thinking. If I'm going to teach you something new, and this works as a pastor, a teacher in his classroom, or a parent, I have to connect that new thing, that new thought, that new idea to something you already know about. I have to draw on the thoughts that you can already think and add them together in such a way that I create a new thought that you have never thought. Most often, we do this using things like a figure of speech, like similes or metaphors, right? The Bible will say the Lord is our strong tower. The Bible is not saying God is a building. The Bible is saying you know what a fortress looks like. You know what a fortress is. God can keep you safer than any fortress. Or we'll say the Lord is my shepherd. God takes something you know about and applies it to himself to try to give you mental furniture to think about God rightly. We might say when we feel tempted, I feel like Eve staring at the forbidden fruit. These are, that's a simile, the first two are metaphors. If you have kids, you get good at this, right? You get really good at this because your kids have this limited framework. Yesterday, I laid out a shirt, a dress shirt that I was going to wear to the wedding. And I put it on the couch, which is outside of my bathroom. And when I got out of the shower, my shirt was on the floor. And I looked at Jack and I said, Jack, my shirt is going to get all wrinkled. And Jack looked at me and he said, Daddy, what are wrinkles? What's wrinkled? And so in my head, this is genius, right? This is how intellectual I am. I immediately start to try to think of an idea he knows about to explain it to him in words. Instead of just picking up the shirt, holding it up, and drawing a line, and like, you see, these are wrinkles. Here, God is doing the same for the human race in Moses. God is trying to teach us things that we cannot think, things that we would never think about God unless God taught us to think rightly about him. And what's more, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 8 pointed out again and again and again, God didn't just describe this tabernacle he made to him. He didn't just use words to do it. Part of the reason it's so hard for us to read about the tabernacle and to envision it in our brain is, one, we're slaves to images because we all live with TVs, and two, because Moses didn't even have to learn it through words. Moses was shown a picture, and then he wrote the words. He's trying to give himself, it's like when, you, uh, when you're building something and you look at it, and then you write down everything you think you need to know in order to build it again. That's kind of what Moses is doing when he describes it to us in Exodus 25 and then again in 40. God shows us a picture. What's really fascinating about this, right, is that new information allows for new ways of thinking. Technology allows for new metaphors that change the way I think about the world around me. You and I uh, are really prone to say something like this. When we're talking about somebody's natural gifts or somebody's innate abilities, we'll say this phrase. He's just wired. 
That's a phrase that could not have existed 200 years ago. You know why? Because wires didn't exist. You didn't have machines with wires in it. That You didn't wire things. You worked. And so you would use that one. We can now talk about downloading something into our brain. We can now talk about something like a network of human beings. Because technology changes the way we think about the world. That what we see and know changes the way we think, the very structure of our thought life. And God knows that, and so that's what God is doing here. God is giving us mental furniture, imagining a space, right thinking patterns to think about God, because our natural thoughts about God are wrong. The flesh, the ego, the unredeemed person cannot think of God correctly. God has to give us the interpretive framework for understanding God. God has to give us the tools we need in order to make the discoveries that God wants us to make. It's almost like God hands us magnifying glasses and then teaches us how to use them. Theologians call these interpretive frameworks hermeneutical keys. That's a fancy word, but it just means that piece of information that unlocks the the meaning of the text. God is giving us words and physical things like me pointing to the actual wrinkles on my shirt God is handing the world physical objects which will help us interpret God and ultimately will help us understand and interpret Jesus the old-timey preachers uh, often call these things types and figures or sometimes shadows types and figures or shadows and those are old words that mean the same thing that these things in the old testament from the tabernacle to the ark to the table to the lampstand Uh, to the altar, to the priesthood, to the kingship, to the kingdom of Israel. These things are types and shadows. That is, they give us the interpretive framework. They help us think rightly about Jesus. They both preview Jesus, but they also give us the tools we need in order to understand Jesus. And the world needs it. The world needs it. You see... Right before this tabernacle is built, there's an enormous crisis in Israel. Huge. They've come out of Egypt, and now they're in the desert. Do you remember this? And Moses goes up onto Sinai. In, in Exodus chapter 20, Moses goes up onto Sinai. And there on Sinai, from 20 to 20, in, in chapter 20, God gives him the Ten Commandments. And we generally think about Moses immediately coming down, but he stays up there. And while he's up there, uh, God gives them more instructions about their life together. And then in Exodus 25 through uh, Exodus 30, God gives the instructions for building the tabernacle. We read Exodus 25 last week. And then in Exodus 31, God identifies the master builders, these craftsmen, these foremen, a man named Bezalel and Oholiab. God's still talking about this tabernacle, tabernacle. And then Exodus 32 happens. Exodus 32, even before Moses can come down with the instructions to build the tabernacle. Moses hears noise, lots of cheering and clamor, and he says, is that the sound of victory or defeat? And God says, no, get down there. Your people have, your people have committed a great sin. And Moses comes down and he finds the golden calf. Finds the golden calf. And then Exodus 33 says this. This is how God responds to the golden calf. Moses immediately um, burns them into smithereens, and he rebukes the people. But in Exodus 33, there's this enormous crisis. God has given them the Ten Commandments. God has promised to take them to the promised land. God has promised, or God has told them about the tabernacle, given outlines for it. And then Exodus 33, verses 1 to 3 say this. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place. 
you and the people you brought out of, of you brought out of Egypt and go to the land that I promised you on oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments, any jewelry, for the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Horeb. And it's just Christless. God has just said, you can go to the promised land, but I am not going with you. You are going alone. My presence will not leave this place and go with you. And the Israelite starts to think, oh no. What's going to happen? What's going... What's, what's going to happen? And then Moses goes and he intercedes. And still in Exodus 33, and Moses goes up. And, and in verse 12, he says this, Moses meets with the Lord. And Moses says to the Lord, you have been telling me to lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know and continue to find favor with you. Remember, remember that this nation is your people. Who will you send with me? Whom you will send with me? In verse 14, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, if your presence does not go with us, do not. Send us up from here. If you will not go with us, we will not leave. If you won't go with us, kill us here. How will anyone know? If you do not go with us, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What will distinguish me and your people from all the other nations, all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Moses says, if you won't go, we won't go. Kill us now. We will not live apart from your presence. Because apart from your presence with us, how will the people know that you are pleased with us? How will they know that you're pleased with Israel? The goal of all of this is that the world would know you, and how will they come to know you if you don't go? And in verse 18, God says, or verse 17, God says, I will go because I am pleased with you. And I know you by name. I have called you. In verse 18, Moses gets audacious. He gets bold and he says, God, show me your glory. Many of you who grew up in the American South knows what happens next. Because we sing it in an old gospel hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. God hides Moses in a rock and his glory passes in front of him and then God lets Moses see the 
the back of this world. What's at stake here is God's presence and God's glory. The tabernacle is a thing that is teaching the world all of that. And so God immediately says, if I'm going with you, we got to get this right. And so God calls Moses back up onto the mountain and again spends time teaching this entire thing. He goes right back to teaching the tabernacle. For the rest of Exodus, God is teaching them about the tabernacle and the things in it. Until we finally get to Exodus 40 where they set up the tabernacle. In this incredible moment where they finally build the entire thing and consecrate the entire thing. You heard all about it. And what happens at the very end of Exodus? What is the last words in the book of Exodus? It says that the Lord's glory filled the temple and prohibited the priests from going in and doing their duty. And then it says this. It says um, that he... It said, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, what would they do? Not set out. They stayed put until the day that it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, and in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. The tabernacle teaches Israel core truths. And Moses can think about them. He can lobby back to God because God has given him all this mental furniture. And so I want to just think about this for a second. Some things the tabernacle teaches us. First, the tabernacle represents both God's throne as Israel's king. Israel does not have a king and will not until they reject God as king. It, and so this, this building, this tent, is shaped like a throne room. The ark being the throne where the king of Israel sits, the king being God. That's the first giant picture of what this tabernacle is. And the second giant kind of overarching picture is that this is God's house. You remember David asked, let me build you a house. And he says, have I needed a house? I've lived in a tent the whole time. Like I have a house. It's covered in kind of leather. It's out there. This is God's residence. So it's not just his throne room, it's also his living room. Those are the two pictures we have to keep in mind as we think about every piece of furniture in it. But the first thing we learn, the, the next thing we learn about this is God says in uh, verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 9, it says a tabernacle was set up. That word for tabernacle is a tent. It's just the literal word for tent. It doesn't have a special meaning. It's like you and I went camping with the Boy Scouts and we stayed in a tabernacle. We stayed in a tent. And this ought to teach us something about God. That God chooses to build a tent and not a temple, a tabernacle, and not a fortress. That God's first home on earth is not brick and mortar, but ramskins and leather, wood, and precious metal. This whole thing, this whole tabernacle is mobile. This entire thing will be picked up, broken down, and moved. Every time God says move, they break it down and carry it with them because God goes with them. You'll notice in every piece of furniture has poles on it so they can pick it up and carry it. And the poles stay in it. The poles are always in it because they're never planning to like stop. And they, they can't touch the actual thing. They can only carry it by the poles and then only by uh, a special family inside the, the Levites. But this teaches God. God is showing the world that God goes with his people. God is not geographically bound. 
Wherever you go, God goes. You are never alone. God is always in the midst of his people. You see, in the Old Testament, when the tabernacle is set up, all the Israelites then camp around it. They camp on all four sides of it. So the center of the Israelite camp is the tabernacle, that God lives in the middle of his people. And the Bible will say God dwells in the midst of his people. When they march, do you know where the tabernacle is? Like smack dab in the middle, with a front guard and a rear guard. Moreover, he goes wherever we are and wherever we go. But moreover, this mobile tabernacle does something not just for Israel, but it also shows all the nations. You saw that, right? That's what Moses says. How would the other nations know? Now the nations of the earth have a place to go to. They have a place that, that will travel to the nations, that will go through the nations, that will, uh, and gives the nations a place to earth. It is prophesied in the Old Testament that all the nations, even the distant islands, will come to the Lord's house to see the Lord's anointed, to see God on his throne in his house. And this gives the world some incredible, incredible interpretive frameworks to make sense of Jesus. As we said last week, John chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, pitched his tent in the neighborhood. Jesus is the mobile tabernacle. Jesus is the walking, talking, two-legged temple of the tabernacle of God. Jesus is a walking, talking, two-legged tabernacle of God. Everywhere he goes, the tabernacle goes. Everything he says, the tabernacle says. He walked among us, lived among us, was always at the center of a giant crowd or at the middle of a giant march. You think about that, right? Zacchaeus can't get to him because there's people in front of him and there's people behind him. So Zacchaeus climbs a tree. He moves like the tabernacle does in the middle of his people. When he sits down, people crowd to him to the point where they even get on the roof above him. He's this mobile tabernacle here living among us. And soon we will hear Jesus, the true tabernacle, who tabernacled among us, say these incredible words. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded of you. What's the last part? What's the last words in Matthew's gospel? And lo, I am with you always very end of the age even to the very end of the age lo I am with you always you and I have inherited a legacy that we often don't even look at and see but those are not thoughts that that human beings can naturally think they are not human being thoughts that human beings naturally think that God goes with us every other religion says human beings come to God or we make God so small that we can carry him in our pocket and he's not God at all. This is the God who created the cosmos and he will move with us. He will go wherever we are. Now, I can't remember the man's name, but he started the prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. And he used to use this benediction all the time. Wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you are, God has put you there. Let me ask you, do you think like that? Do you think like God's tabernacle is mobile, that God goes with you, that God goes with you wherever you go to make disciples, that you are never alone, that you have never been outside of the presence of God's tabernacle? See, 2 Corinthians will say this about us in 2 Corinthians 3.16 and then again in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. They both say this. 
that we have had the spirit of God that inhabited the, 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 the tabernacle poured out into the us, into his church. And so the church is now the tabernacle of God. My friend, uh, Uncle Victor Chowdhury, who lives in India, always looks at us and he says, you are the walking, talking, two-legged temple of the Holy Ghost. You are a walking, talking, two-legged temple of the Holy Ghost. You know when I remember this most, and I got to remember it a lot this week, is when I'm in a hospital room. Let me ask you again. Do you think of the church as a building, as this building, or as a moving people? That where you are, the church is. What you do, the church does. That I get credit for what you're doing at work, so do it well. That I get credit for what you do in your house, so do it well. Because you're doing it as the temple of God, as the tabernacle. Live like that is true. That there's not a sacred place here or a sacred place in Jerusalem. I remember this when I walk into hospital rooms and I get ready to pray for someone getting ready to have a massive surgery. And I will almost always say these words. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that there is no holier place on the entire earth than this place right now. Where your people are calling on your name. That we do not need to go to Jerusalem or Mecca or Berenaki in order to be in a holy place. That this place right here, right now where two or three are gathered you are there in their midst as much as you are on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem or at the foot of Calvary's Hill. You are here. Do you believe that? When your family gets together and has dinner and says the blessing before it, do you believe that that table is as sacred as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? Do you eat like that is a sacred meal? Do you believe your office is sacred? Because God is there, and where God is, is sacred. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song uh, called Holy Ground. It's actually in our hymnals. It goes, we're standing on holy ground. We're standing on holy ground. For the Lord is present, and where he is, is holy Let's live jobs like the tabernacle goes with us. Let's work and play like God, the tabernacle moves onto those ball fields. Let's build houses and cut hair and teach school and raise children like the tabernacle is on our heels. Like God's presence is not confined to a building that will not move that we have to go to. is teaching the world so much. Let's pray like that is true. Let's pray like that is true. I'm going to just talk one piece of furniture. Actually, I should just stop now. I can save it for next week. Do you see what God is doing here? Do you see it? It's hard to see. It's hard to see. It's always been hard to see. 
You see, when God designed this temple, he, or this tabernacle, he collected almost 16 tons of, or 8 tons of precious material. Do you know what it looked like from the outside? It was covered in some durable leather. We have no idea what the Hebrew word means. I'm just going to tell you the truth. In the King James, it says badger skins. Anybody have a Bible that says badger skins? Your Bible may say uh, some durable leather. That's when the translators just gave up. They said, we know it's leather. We know it's durable. We know it wicks water. Some might say sea, um, like seals or sea cows. You might have sea cows in your Bible. <laughs> like it, a lot of people think it's an aquatic, it's some kind of aquatic mammal. Like, I don't, whale hides, or I don't think there's manatees in the Mediterranean, but like something. We don't know, but we know it's durable. So from the outside, if you look down on this giant box, and you know what it looks like? It looks like a giant brown leather box. It's, there's nothing beautiful or, or nice about it. It's just a huge tent. It's, it's just, dare I say, I mean, like, unappealing, ugly. When you get inside, when you get inside, everything's gold and full of the most artistry that has ever been put into a building. That everything is, is hand embroidered and hand engraved and handmade. And the inside is absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. The same was true of Jesus. Isaiah 53 said, there is nothing beautiful about his appearance that we should flock to him. And yet in him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. It was only if you could overcome Jesus' humble, shabby appearance, only if you could look at a man torn apart in torture and see the love of God, only if you could see his heart could you enter and embrace it. And the same is true of his church today. Look, I know churches, including this one, can be shabby. From the outside, sometimes they look like there's nothing special, that they're full of, full of nothing but the same things the world is full of. But the cure is not to walk away. The cure is to push in. If you had walked away from the tabernacle, you would have walked away from the only place God met with humanity. And you would have missed out on the glory of God. And if you walk away from his church, you will similarly miss out on the same stuff. For Ephesians chapter 3 says, says this, And now God is pleased to display his multifaceted, multi-splendored glory to the powers and principalities through his body, the church. It's through the church that God plans to show his great glory to the world. Next week, not next week, next week, Scout Sunday, the two weeks after that, I'll teach about lampstands and basins and altars and art, or at least two of those. We're not going to rush this. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. Teach us to think rightly. God, the author of Hebrews was setting all of this up, begging us to draw near to the throne of God. 
the payload of this entire line of theological argumentation is that you have proved throughout history that you are the God who welcomes sinners, who makes a way for them, and that you will ultimately do that in Jesus, who tears the veil wide open, who walks into the holy of holies and leaves the door open. And now you beseech all who can hear my voice to draw near to God's throne of grace that you might receive mercy in your time of trouble. You beg all of us to draw near to God with sincere hearts, having been sprinkled and made clean with pure water and the blood of Christ. Come into the throne room. Come into your dad who is already waiting on you. Come to your father who has been chasing you since before you knew it. Come into this place with your heart open and your sin laid bare and trust that you will be met by the embrace of God. That God does not just want to be the God of the universe. He wants to be the God of you. God doesn't want to just be the God of you. God wants to be your father and your friend. You can say yes right now with a simple prayer. God, I give all that I know of me to all that I know of you. I know I'm a sinner and I need you. And so I just cling to the promise you made in Jesus that I'm forgiven, that you love me and you know my name just as you loved Moses and you knew Moses' name. I claim those same words as truth in me, proved by Jesus, that you, God, are pleased with me. You, God, know my name in Jesus.